the great fundamental issue now before our people can be stated briefly. It is, are the American people fit to govern themselves, to rule themselves, to control themselves? I believe they are. My opponents do not. I believe in the right of the people to rule. I believe again that the American people are as a whole capable of self-control and of learning by their mistakes. Welcome to Serve to Lead. I'm your host, James Strzok. As we get started, may I ask a small favor? If you find value in this podcast, please give us a high rating on iTunes and connect via Twitter at James Strzok and via our website, servetolead.org. With us today is one of America's leading public intellectuals, Naomi Wolf. She emerged into international prominence in the early 1990s with the publication of her influential and provocative work, the beauty myth. She's a political activist associated with the left, a journalist, and a PhD in English literature from Oxford. Now she's also focused on a new venture, The Daily Clout. Naomi's latest book is Outrages, Sex, Censorship, and the Criminalization of Love. Naomi Wolf, welcome to Serve to Lead. James, thank you so much for having me. Um, I, I appreciate your you're welcome, and we've we've already had a lot of great conversations. It's always a pleasure for me to talk to you, and now to get to talk to your audience, so thank you. Well, thank you, and Naomi, amid the various aspects of your wide-ranging career, you don't seem reluctant to court controversy now and again, and your latest book is no exception. Would you please tell us how you discovered the 19th century English critic John Addington Simons and your decision to build a book around his life and times, and why is it relevant to us in the early 21st century? Um, Thank you for asking. Well, Simmons is really an amazing character, and he he should really be much better known than he is. Um, I was uh, introduced to him at Oxford, where there is now, um, where I was a graduate student, where there are now some wonderful um, lectures and courses on uh, things that really weren't taught when I first was a graduate student in the 1980s. Um, but uh, now the kind of pioneers of uh, the earliest um, form of advocacy for equality for people of all genders, um, you know, it is taught. And so I was introduced to him there and I read his uh, three gigantic volumes of letters that span his entire life. And I really just kind of fell in love with the voice um, because it's the letters start out with him as a very young man, a teenager. And um, I, you know, really empathized with this young man kind of trying to, to find himself, struggling to find himself. And then, uh, you know, it quickly became clear that this is a young man who, you know, falls in love with other young men. And he did that at a time, unfortunately, when this was very dangerous um, for for men who loved men, um, and uh, and then he came of age as a as a poet and as a critic, uh, and he struggled his whole career and his whole life to tell the truth uh, that as he saw it about love between men at a time before there was even the language that we have now about human sexual variation and um, you know the the nat the that the natural differences in how people love each other are drawn to each other. Um, So he really struggled. And what was especially beautiful to me as an American and an admirer of Walt Whitman is that he was kind of inspired by discovering 
the book Leaves of Grass when he was 26 years old. And mm. uh, a friend of his handed him this volume. And, and at that time, Leaves of Grass was really being passed around surreptitiously in Britain because it was illegal to import it. Um, and uh, it, of course, Walt Whitman speaks very eloquently about um, love between people of various genders and yeah. also love for the earth, love for God. It's this very spiritual um, approach to humans' relationship to each other and to earth and to a higher power. And, it, it, you know, for the first time, he saw his love for other men as ennobled and, and spiritually elevated. So this led to a, a, a decades-long correspondence. He never met Whitman, but he fell in love with this voice. And, and the correspondence with Whitman in a freer country um, provoked him ultimately to write uh, toward the end of his life. It was a short life cut short with, by tuberculosis, but to, to write toward the end of his life um, the first, what could well be the first gay rights manifesto in English, which is a problem in modern ethics. So it's, it's an amazing story and it's a great love story. He finally found, he always wanted to be married, right? It wasn't like he just, he was a great romantic and he finally found love, you know, domestic, deep, committed love with a, a gondolier toward the end of his <laughs> life. Um, and they, they formed what we would today call a, you know, a gay marriage. And um, so it's this kind of journey of a man who never gave up on true love and also a man who really shaped our understanding of people's of how love transcends kind of narrow rigid definitions of who should be with who you know that we now inherit but also he really believed in 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 poetry and in in books and it's also an amazing detective story a literary detective story because he embedded codes and clues in his manuscripts for us in the future to piece together um, to tell to tell the story of this this great love he had for for Angelo Fusato, this gondolier. So that's an amazing story. So that's why I wrote it. Well it's beautifully written as and that was an excellent summary. Let me ask you a question about 21st century controversies. As you know there's a lot of debates now about the role of identity in mm -hmm. academe, literature, and journalism. And a number of your books are built very firmly on your identity as a woman, a feminist, using your personal direct experience. Mm -hmm. uh, this book, by contrast, is focused on LGBTQ in another country, another century, and the experience of a male. So what are your thoughts on identity issues in history and literature today? And how do you prepare to take on subject matters like this that are distant from your own experience? Well, that's a really great question. Um, <laughs> I, I guess I've, I've never written just about my own experience. Um, I, it's true that I, as a feminist, have thought it was important to allow um, my eyewitness experience to have value. I mean, that's kind of one of the first feminist lessons is the personal is political and you're allowed to tell the truth about your life. But I always in my books, um, James, uh, kind of go back and forth between stories about my life, stories about other women's lives, um, other men's lives, when it's relevant to the subject matter. And then I take a, a, a bigger picture view and do analysis of, you know, social trends or political trends or, or you know, historical intellectual history. 
um, because we don't live in a vacuum and, and everything I've written about, whether it's threats to civil liberties in the end of America or beauty ideals, as you mentioned in my book, The Beauty Myth, they all come from somewhere, right? And I've always been fascinated with, with intellectual history and where, where our assumptions about kind of what's normal and natural come from. Um, so I guess I felt like it would not be appropriate for me to include my personal experience in outrages because um, I'm not a gay man and I'm not, you know, I'm not a, a Victorian. <laughs> um, and also because this, this, this man's tale is so extraordinary and I really wanted to just get myself out of the way so that readers could know him like his desire in his lifetime was to be known and he tried to tell his own story at a time when laws were passed to uh to censor um discussion about sexuality um the 1857 obscene publications act uh you know, made it illegal to to write certain truths about sexuality, whether you were male or female. So he finally gave up on Britain and and moved to Europe, where the laws against homosexuality were less rigid, um, because he felt like he would never be able to share his poetry or his criticism or his essays about his central theme, which was love between men in his own native land. So I, I really felt like, you know, he's this great historical figure who's been kind of half lost to history. And it was, um, you know, far be it from me to not just get out of the way and let let his own voice, you know, come through to readers. Um, so that's that's why this is a book about John Eddington Simmons and not about me. <laughs> And do you have any general observations on this controversy on identity and academe and literature right now? Well, that is, James, I love talking to you for just this reason. I mean, that this is one of the great, rich, difficult subjects of our time. I have lots of opinions about yeah. um, controversy around identity, uh, but they probably won't fit neatly in left or right um, labels, which are so often how they're uh, presented for debate. I, you know, really feel that um, the Western canon is enriched by the voices of many writers who have traditionally been excluded being included. I mean, I think we're all better off for reading Toni Morrison and Emily Dickinson and um, many, many other writers who have not always been central to the curricula, but at the same time, I, I really am an old-fashioned humanist, and that's why I love, you know, Whitman and Simmons. Um, I really believe that, you know, Whitman's voice, for instance, speaks to everybody, you know, of whatever background, whatever ethnicity, whatever sexuality, and I think that all of us, like reading makes all of us able to empathize with other human beings very differently situated. So when when people have said, you know, I, I, I part with people on the left when they tend to say things like, well, you have to write a certain way if you're a woman or you have to write about certain subjects if you're a person of color or you can't address certain subjects if you're not 
you know, this or that identity. Um, I, I don't agree with that. I think it's always important to acknowledge kind of who you are and where you are um, in relationship to the subject matter. But, we, you know, the beauty of works of the imagination and of literature is that they let us feel, you know, and imagine what it's like to be in someone else's life. Yeah, I don't, very, I mean, yeah. sorry, just no, to add please. to that, James, if I may, like this technically or literally is a book about what today we would call a gay man. But, you know, the reason I, I felt so strongly about this author is I'm a mom, you know, and I had a teenage boy at the time that I discovered John Addington Simmons. And I related to this teenage boy, like just wanting to have his first love, you know, and then finding out like, <laughs> oh my God, I could be, you know, I, I, I could go to prison for this. Um, I, I empathized with that as a mother. And there's this really beautiful section in uh, Whitman's notes uh, written up by Horace Traubel, who was a young man who kind of attended to him and, and was an acolyte really. And, and Whitman says something like um, about Simmons, he was one of us. And in, in the book, I kind of have a bit of a reverie about this. Like, what, is, what does Whitman mean by that? He was one of us. It could literally mean he was a man who loved men. He was a homosexual, as we would say today. Um, or, you know, who is us? He could also mean here's someone who fought for a better world. Here's someone who envisioned a better world. Here's someone who dared to bet that the future could be better than the present if if he put effort into that like who is us and by the same token i think like this is you know this is a story about a man who kind of was inspired to believe in the future and change the future and he did it all for love like what is more universal than that right so that's the beauty of literature it transcends identity yeah that's very well said let's pause for a moment on you've got as one tends to do now and again, and a little bit of controversy over a few words that look like they have a different meaning in common understanding than in the law. Could you talk about that and what that's about from your point of view? Sure. When the book came out, um, a, an interviewer noted, and I appreciate this, that I had interpreted um, the phrase death recorded in the proceedings of the Old Bailey as an execution. Um, and he had access to uh, papers that were not available on that same website when I did my research, but that very usefully showed that two of the cases that I thought had ended in execution had not done so. Um, however, the initial controversy also uh, introduced a lot of errors into um, people's assumption of what was in the book, as, as you probably know, James, because men were executed for sodomitical offenses, sadly, in the 19th century. And this really got whitewashed in the debate. Um, this is absolutely accurate and true. Uh, 55 men were executed for sodomitical offenses in Britain before 1835. And after that, a number of historians are, are now really digging deeply into the research. Um, one of them is publishing an essay in Parliamentary History. Uh, you know, the death penalty was enforced till 1861, and um, parliamentary debate shows that it was very reasonable for men like Simmons to fear the death penalty till 1861, um, because parliamentarians were very clear that 
um, sodomy was a capital offense. Um, so it is a, you know, 19th century British legal history is, is based as one of my legal readers put it on fragments. And so there were two cases I got wrong and have corrected, but the bigger picture really stands, you know, there's been kind of a, an erasure of how seriously men were persecuted for sodomitical offenses, which is the Victorian term in the 19th century. And it's important for us to know, because this is, you know, this, this targeting of gay people, targeting of transsexual people, um, it's really arising again uh, in, in very violent form in North America and in Britain and as a censorship, you know, as it is a call for censorship. And I really believe, and this is transpartisan, I really believe as Americans and as, you know, people who, or as British people, you know, the commitment we should have to democracy and freedom of speech and equality under law should um, lead us all, whatever our political orientation, to resist calls to, to hate and demonize people and to silence speech. And what is the status of your book now for listeners that want to get a copy? Is um, it available well, now? Or I think it's on Amazon, I saw. Is it generally available or what's the status? Yeah, um, I don't know if you can get it. I know you cannot get a copy yet in the U.S. And I'm not yet at liberty to share next steps on that. But as soon as I am, I'll let you know. Well, then I feel all the more privileged to have a bootleg copy to review, which I have, and I'm learning a lot from it. I'm excited to see the next steps, Thank as you. I'm sure are many others. Uh, quick question. You talked about the canon, uh, the Western canon, and mm -hmm. its expanding nature and so on. One of your teachers, I believe, Harold Bloom, Mm -hmm. uh, recently died and that and he was identified with the western canon do you have and i know you had some degree of controversies publicly involving him but i don't know the full extent of your back and forth how do you evaluate his work at this distance i mean i don't think it's appropriate for me right now to speak about harold bloom except to express condolences for his passing I just don't think it's the right time. Fair enough. And if we could move on to a, another general question, you know, part of the power of your writing, and it is very powerful, is that you bring a great passion from your simultaneous engagement in public affairs. And this is often missing today. You, you have a lifeless sort of prose, particularly from professors and other cloistered experts. Uh, yet a lot of people doubtless push back on you for this or look to find problems. How do you combine these strains, meeting the academic standards, as you clearly do, along with your political advocacy, remaining effective at both? Oh, gosh, I'm not sure I understand what you mean, uh, but I'm going to try to answer it. Anyway. Okay. Um, I think that, well, I am really committed to bringing academic ideas to a broad general audience. I think that people are smart um, in general, like wherever they're situated in life. And, uh, you know, popular culture offers very debased ideas to people who are not lucky enough to go to really expensive, exclusive institutions, um, which is getting harder and harder for, for most people to do. So that's not good for democracy. It's not good for us all as a community. Um, so I really do believe in taking 
great ideas that tend to be kind of hoarded in ivory tower settings and 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 sort of translating them for a general reader. Um, and that's what what I always try to do. I mean, all of my books are very exhaustively footnoted, as I learned to do as an undergraduate, as a graduate student. Um, but at the same time, I try to write in language. I try to write the main text in language that anyone with a high school education can understand. Um, and I do that out of respect for for readers because, you know, people everywhere deserve access to complicated ideas and exciting ideas that I try to, you know, translate or bring to readers from other disciplines. Well, as we're now several decades into the digital age and we now have our first generations of adults who are digital natives, mm-hmm. how does this affect how you communicate and write? Do you sense, as some people do, that people's attention span is being limited by the changing nature of information dissemination? Oh, James, absolutely, I do. I mean, it's excruciating. I think, um, I mean, honestly, I think Twitter is making people speak in short, sharp bursts at each other without listening. I, I, I see it in my students, you know, they have trouble sustaining focus for a whole essay, let alone a book, let alone a 19th century novel. Um, And it's not their fault. They're literally, you know, the brains are being rewired by these bursts of information and this kind of constant, constant interruption. Um, And it's it's tragic. And and I, I see it degrading journalism. I see it degrading public debate. Um, And I I do worry about the future. I mean, having said that, I, you know, I try to embrace digital knowledge and communication. You know, of course, I built a, or co-founded a digital platform called Daily Cloud. And, you know, so I've had to kind of not be a dinosaur and, and try to use the platform to, you know, enhance our understanding and communication, but it's definitely a challenge. So back to your earlier point about identity and empathy. In a time when it appears fewer people are reading long form journalism to some extent, and certainly there's a a sense of crisis for novels compared Mm. to the past decades. Uh, How are people going to develop empathy if those sorts of literary works are less used and at the same time they're being told that they in effect can't or don't have to given their identity um i you're you're asking like the question of of our age james i and you're I the person really to tell us know. that's why i had to ask you <laughs> it's nice of you but i really don't know because what i do see among people brought up on digital culture and social media is that empathy is not always the first default that their brains go to and that's not their fault it's kind of understandable because the nature of twitter and the nature of um social media is that you're in a you're in a a, a, what's been called a filter bubble you get um you get reflected uh back to you the the views like the algorithm learns who you learns who you are and you um, kind of hear an echo chamber or you see a reflection of yourself all the time. And I think that undermines empathy. I really don't know what the answer is except to unplug people um, and 
and to urge everyone to unplug periodically and and almost to you know cultivate i mean i try to cultivate mindfulness and compassion as an actual practice i mean they're like you know meditations one can do to cultivate mindfulness and compassion but like literally we need to i'm a big fan of like the dalai lama and my uncle dan goldman also does this work he wrote emotional intelligence i mean there are a lot of smart people encouraging us all to take care of our brains and our capability of empathizing with other people by intervening through active you know meditations and visualizations around focus and compassion because otherwise our attention is so scattered and, and it's so hard for us to feel um the pain of another human being and by the way i think this is a very political question um because you asked the second part of your question was about identity i i do think that the social media bubbles and the way extremes are rewarded in uh, in the political sphere um, on both sides leads to a terrible fracturing of civic life and civil debate and discourse. And that's really the most toxic thing, the most dangerous thing I'm seeing right now, you know, looking at the United States. Well, I'd like to turn back to that in a moment. But first, I'd like to turn to another one of your works. One that I particularly admire is the Treehouse, eccentric Thank wisdom you. from my father on how to live, love, and see. It's a gem with all manner of lessons about love and life and work and writing with an artistic sensibility. Would you share a bit about that book, both then and now, and your relationship and lessons from your late father? Sure. Um, thank you for asking. And sadly, he passed away this year. Uh, and so I'm glad I wrote it while he was alive and I have his legacy kind of captured a little bit. Um, so my dad was a true bohemian and he was a poet and he was also a writer and he, you know, the tree has this kind of life lessons um, for, for anyone uh, from, the, from the, the classes he taught in, in writing, but they're really applicable to kind of daily life. And it's hard to summarize, but it's sort of about how to be, well, at least what you were asking me about, James, how to be present to other people and to, you know, the joy of every day, um, how to notice, how to wonder, um, how to not, you know, how to kind of color outside the lines. He was a real original. And as you see from the people I write about, like Whitman and Simmons, you know, I love these minds that are not constrained by uh, convention. Um, yeah. And it was kind of, there, there are not that many true Bohemians left. And, uh, he was, he was one of these post-war, um, you know, immigrants. He came from Romania and what, you know, English wasn't his first language and he fell in love with, with poetry and with Chaucer and, and, you know, grew up to become a, a professor of English and a poet, and that's like such a success story. But he he also, I, I really do kind of owe him my career because he also taught me that he does, it's, well, you know, people often ask me, how can you stand so much criticism? <laughs> and he, he really taught me that it's, you know, your only allegiance as a writer is to the truth as you see it, or to the integrity of that work of art, and that you really can't pay attention to anything else it's 
kind of failing your art to be swayed by you know conventional sentiment for or against and he also said that you had to choose between the life of a writer and the career of a writer and you couldn't have both um that's like yates isn't it uh yeah. Did he say that first? He probably said yes. that first. Well, then my well. dad, my dad co-opted it without attribution. But, um, but uh, I owe it to Yates. That, <clears throat> but yes, and it's true. You know, uh, you you can't have both. And and my dad always kind of um, encouraged me very firmly to not, you know, let the career of the writer take care of itself, but really to be true to the life of a writer. It's not always fun, I have to say, but I I do think that's where. Um, you know, looking back, the people who have made a difference in literature and in society are the ones who are true to what they have to say, whether or not, you know, society rewards them at that particular moment. Well, now, in the nature of things, as you referred to earlier, you're a mother and yes. you raise girls and boys, as I understand it. That's what correct. have you learned from that experience and what would have surprised, say, your 20-year-old self or your 40-year-old self? Oh my, these are great questions. Well, um, I have definitely, and I should say, I'm not just a mother. I'm also, as of recently, a stepmother, which I'm very lucky to to say my, that my my family size has doubled. I, I was married recently, and I uh, acquired an eight year old and a 22 year old, in addition to my 24 year old and 19 year old. Um, what I would say about having raised a son and a daughter. Um, and I tried not to talk about them when they were growing up, but now that they're adults, I can talk about them to some extent. Um, I, I really think that, you know, they kind of come out their own selves, don't they? And and I, do, I, I don't, in my experience, gender didn't mean as much as just who they were. Uh, you know, Rosie was always very uh, forceful and feisty, and, you know, Joe was always kind of emotionally attuned to other people and 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 more introspective and uh, is that gender it's just who they are you know um but you know another boy and girl might have led me to draw different conclusions i mean definitely you know there are these gender differences that you just can't erase like i literally sat for hours and hours and hours on the floor playing at trucks with Joe and not with Rosa <laughs> and thinking, why is Joe interested in this? This is not interesting. <laughs> you know? um, and that was clearly, you know, brain difference. Uh, but I don't think you can generalize. And what's the, gosh, what's my other, I, I guess, James, I always feel nervous drawing any kind of conclusion about raising children because I think we can never take credit for for any successes, right? You can just, you can take credit for not, not ruining them, <laughs> but they, they kind of come out perfect. And, you know, all you can do is sort of try to, you know, not, not uh, inhibit the, the organic perfection that they, they arrive onto the planet with. I mean, all our children, they all, they all arrive perfect. Um, I wish I had better, <laughs> better, a better takeaway than that, but that, that's the best I've got. Naomi Wolf, let's segue toward leadership. You've dedicated considerable attention through your career to nurturing rising leaders. One recalls your association with an institute named for Victoria Woodhull, an American, very American figure, historical 19th century radical. What is your current take on developing leaders in the rising generations? Um, 
Well, yeah, we need young people's leadership more than ever. And um, I think that actually I'm very hopeful about these new generations coming up because I do think the internet, as toxic as it can be, also gives people, young people especially, and young women especially, a really effective way to organize and educate themselves and realize that they're not alone. Um, it's exciting to see leadership, feminist leadership emerging or women's leadership emerging in um, very suppressive societies uh, where women don't have equal rights and the internet is a big part of that. For instance, the Arab Spring was um, led by a lot of very young women, you know, online or on their phones in an otherwise repressive, uh, often repressive society. Um, and I, I think, uh, you know, what I guess what concerns me about young people and leadership is not their will. Um, I see a lot of really, you know, inspiring um, environmental activism, uh, a lot of concern about democracy that's transpartisan, people caring about election integrity. Um, but my worry is education because uh, college is just so expensive, especially in the United States. Student loans are crippling. And, you know, Elizabeth Warren talks about this, not that I'm partisan, um, other, other candidates do as well on the left and the right. Uh, back a generation or two ago, there were great public universities that cost a few thousand dollars um, a, a year to, to go to, and, and middle class and working class people could afford to get it, get their kids educated. Um, and that was incredibly important for upward, upward mobility. A lot of leaders in their 50s and 60s, you know, were publicly educated. Uh, those options just really aren't available anymore. And, and that's what concerns me, because when kids, when young people don't have access to a good, rigorous, objective education and to intellectual freedom, um, they are susceptible to propaganda and to, you know, manipulation of their views, to extremist views and so on. Well, looking ahead to the coming decades and thinking of those rising leaders, what changes do you see as the second wave boomers and Gen X begin to head into their older years? And what kind of interaction among the generations do you see coming or that ought to come? Um, hmm. That's a great question. I mean, honestly, a lot of boomers can't stand working with millennials and there's a big cultural uh, clash between them and and there there are real cultural obstacles to, to the generations working well together. Um, I guess, look, I always feel like older people really do have a responsibility to nurture and mentor younger people, even if it can be frustrating and annoying sometimes with these cultural differences and, and vice versa. I think that um, people in their, their 20s uh, unfortunately don't have good access to a culture of kind of respect for older people's experience, you know, and, and there are a lot of reasons for that. But if I often advise young people that I mentor to kind of take a breath, write the thank you notes, um, you know, uh, try to be compassionate about the fact that the person who's older than you or guiding you or offering you an opportunity may actually have life experience that, you know, would be valuable and is taking time to talk to you. Um, you know, so I, I, I think hmm, it's a tough one because we don't really have a, a society anymore in which the generations have positive encounters with each other um, or, or a way to transmit, you know, information that's respectful. Um, I actually think it's, it's interesting. I was a college professor for a little while and 
both at the university level and at the high school level, the practice of students kind of grading teachers publicly and the on a high school level, especially with private education, the um, the the fact that education is so expensive and, and parents are treated like customers, it's led to a, a, a breakdown of of structures of respect for um, the teacher, you know, uh, and that's in a way not so good because it leads teachers to not want to be tough intellectually or not want to, you know, grade rigorously. Um, and I don't think that's good for students or for or for the older generation. So what's the solution to that? I mean, I really fund public education freely, which I, I think uh, is something that people on the left and the right can come together about. Well, let's move to another part of your current work, the Daily Cloud. Could you please tell us about that? Sure, I'd love to. So um, it's a platform in which um, we, our mission is to uh, create easy to understand blogs and videos and even infographics um, explaining legislation to Americans and not just legislation, but also the other things that so affect our lives, but are, are usually so hard to understand, like um, regulations or resolutions, you know, the structures of democracy or what is impeachment, for instance, what's the emoluments clause? What are these things? Like these are, these shouldn't be partisan discussions. Um, primarily people who have this beautiful thing, this democracy, uh, should really be deeply educated and understanding like how does it work? How, how are citizens supposed to um, use it, engage with it? You know, how do you lobby? Uh, so that we've been really successful. Um, and I'm really proud to say it's truly transpartisan. We uh, feature legislation on the left, we feature legislation on the right, we've interviewed a bunch of members of Congress and um, state houses, uh, both on the left and on the right. And the really cool thing is that when you take that approach, you see that, you know, beyond the headlines and beyond the hype, you know, legislators across the political spectrum, really a lot of them just want to, you know, pass good 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 laws and good good um, legislation to, to serve the people and there's a lot of kind of behind the scenes nice bipartisan legisla legislation good problem solving that people are getting together on um, or even really good ideas coming from across the political spectrum that don't get a lot of uh, media attention because the you know the, the 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 race or the conflict or the stalemate is so much more newsworthy um, so the other really exciting thing that we do is that we have a, and this sounds really nerdy, but it's actually incredibly impactful. It's a legislative database, <clears throat> which is socially shareable called BillCam. And so you can um, go and find um, any state or federal bill uh, super easily. And actually we, a lot of people who use it are, um, staffers of elected officials because I think it's even easier and more intuitive than kind of existing databases that mm -hmm. that the government provides unless you're very lucky and uh, and then once you found your your set of bills and that itself the search results themselves are really extraordinary because you can see like the same bill rewritten you know very slightly in 22 different states or you can see you know trends or you can see wow, you know, that worked in Alabama and they're doing it in, you know, three other states. Or you can see that a bill that gets really good media attention, like there was one we shone a light on for um, free 
or ta taking taxes off of menstrual products in California, that assemblywoman got so much positive press um, that other states were introducing similar um, similar bills. So then you can take your bill and you can pop it right into Twitter. You can pop it right into Facebook. You can share it with your networks and you also get to see who the sponsors are. So it um, will and who your elected official is. A lot of people don't know. Uh, and then you can tweet the bill directly to that person. And it's a very, very powerful tool for citizens to use because, um, first of all, there's no there's no there's no smoke filled rooms anymore, um, for instance, with the tax bill. And again, more nonpartisan, but people who were sponsoring it. Well, let me use a better example. The health care bill. People who were sponsoring it were claiming that it covered cancer, but we read the bill and it totally did not cover cancer. So we're able to say, not partisan, but we're able to say, look, on page 70, you can see that it does not cover cancer, whatever the page number was. Um, and then people can tweet that right to the sponsor, and that leads to better legislation. And it's also good for elected officials, because they can see that, you know, gee, my, my constituents aren't happy about this. You know, I better change it and make it something I can really show my constituents and, and, and be proud, you know, to fair and, and have it be so public. Um, so we've had really good outcomes, again, across the political spectrum. We're not lobbying. We're teaching, uh, you know, uh, citizens how to become lobbyists effectively from their phones or from their, their desktops. Um, you know, one example I want to share is, again, totally nonpartisan. Um, the, you know, Puerto Rico got devastated uh, with a hurricane, and yet Puerto Rico was not being included in funds in a FEMA bill. Uh, Texas and Louisiana were, understandably. So we just shone a light on this. And um, the person who was in charge of appropriations was a New Jersey um, member of Congress. So we um, encouraged Pete, his constituents to have their say about whether or not Puerto Rico should be in the FEMA bill. And a lot of people in New Jersey cared about Puerto Rico and tweeted their guy. And um, he had a, a a press release on his website uh, a week later announcing that Puerto Rico was in the FEMA bill. Oh, um, terrific. It's yeah. really beautiful. And it's like, to me, that's like, that's what politics should be because that's kind of win-win, right? Like the people had their say. Um, no one was telling anyone what to do. We were just shining a light on the issue, shining a light on the bill. And, uh, and, and they were moved themselves to add it. And I think it's a a better piece of legislation. Um, so we see this a lot and it's it's lovely. And, and you know, it's partly lovely because I I know a bunch of elected officials and I, I try to be really respectful, as you know, to people across the political spectrum and really listen. Um, and I've learned a lot. And I I know that a lot of people who want to serve, like, you know, serve serve to lead, right? A lot of people who uh, seek out, you know, public service don't want to be beholden to special interests. They don't want to have to do what K Street lobbyists make them have to do under our current system, whether they're on the left or the right. So to actually be able to show, well, look, you know, a ton of constituents have tweeted me that they want me to do this or that with this bill. Um, you know, that that's quite liberating, I think, for people who really just want to serve the public or at least want everyone's voices at the table. Um, let me oh. give you quickly. A, a, let's a do correction. one more because I do want to get a couple yeah. more questions in. I'm, I'm a super nerd. I'm a super nerd. <laughs> but just to be truly tr nonpartisan or transpartisan, 
Yes. We also read both versions of the Green New Deal. And that was a shock. And it's one of our biggest videos because in the Green New Deal, there's um, uh, it's totally opaque. Like this vast sum of money flows through opaque private financial instruments. Uh, and people really need to know that. And like, I personally really want a Green New Deal, but um, people were so startled and upset at how poorly the Green New Deal was written and how, uh, how it lacked transparency that the final resolution was a lot better. Um, you know, it was, it, it, it didn't have those big red flags of uh, flowing so much money through opaque financial interests. Well, that's terrific. Well, I can tell that on this and other issues, we're going to hope to get you back uh, in 2020 and follow up. If, I'd like to ask you a few questions in closing uh, for this today. Could you share a few books or other creative works that have been particularly influential with you that you'd recommend to others? Oh, gosh. I mean, I think everyone should read, um, you know, good biographies of, of the founding fathers and mothers, because really understanding how our American um, system began is critical. So, um, you know, or, or even collections of works, like I love Ben Franklin's collected works. They're just so yes. funny and so perceptive and, you know, <laughs> and, and Jefferson's, right? Those are my favorites. Um, other than that, uh, I do like to read biographies and cultural histories. So, um, I just read Erica Wagner's Chief Engineer, which is about the guy who um, who designed the Brooklyn Bridge, uh, because that, again, conveyed so much um, history of the growth of America, the growth of New York and Brooklyn at that time in the middle of the 19th century, which, of course, I'm interested in. Um, so, you know, as I said to you earlier, James, I, I like biographies and cultural histories that show where ideas came from and how we got here. Um, so those are a few examples I'd share. Terrific. Well, Claire Booth Luce famously instructed President Kennedy that everyone is ultimately remembered, encapsulated in one sentence. What would you like your one sentence to be? Mm. That's a tough one. Um, I mean, <laughs> she didn't give up. <laughs> That's a good one. I'll settle for that. Very good one. Naomi Wolf, how can listeners best follow and connect with you and your various activities on social media? Thank you for asking. Well, the best thing is to reach out to us on Daily Cloud. So it's Naomi at dailycloud.io. Um, you can tweet me. Uh, you can... Um, but really that email is the best one. I read all my emails. I try to respond to everyone and, uh, not just me, but the whole team at daily cloud and Nisha, Elena, uh, Fran, Charlotte, um, we've got to get some more men in there. <laughs> um, we, you know, we're all responsive to all of our, you know, all of our community. And, and certainly, you know, I feel like my community is kind of everyone who cares about democracy and human rights. So I, I welcome, you know, comments and tweets and, communications. And, and also we like to invite people to write for Daily Cloud. You know, if they've got a, a local issue, uh, a state issue, um, something they think should be on people's radar, we have a section called Bulletin Board, uh, you know, local announcements, um, town meetings, town council events, you know, send them along to Naomi at dailycloud.io or info at dailycloud.io. Terrific. 
Naomi Wolf, thank you very much. And thanks to you, our listeners, for being with us. Please rate us highly on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at James Strzok. And connect via our website, servetolead.org. Thank you so much, James. It's been an absolute pleasure. And um, I'll direct people to your, your wonderful podcast as well and website. Thank you. Thank you.